I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. One upside to living in Minneapolis is uh, nothing ever happens in Minnesota. Uh, We have almost nothing that we're famous for, except for Mary Tyler Moore and Prince. And, uh, to a lesser degree, the replacements that uh, no one really thinks is all that cool anymore. I still do. Most people don't. Um, Beyond that, not a whole lot. Uh, We have weather that everyone complains about. Ah, And uh, bike trails. That's kind of it. But this year, for some reason... It's as if the world has focused itself on us and wants to destroy us. First, uh, yeah, straight to the point, uh, a man was murdered in Minnesota, uh, in Minneapolis, and uh, it caused protests, which then we're finding out even this week in the news, uh, a bunch of white nationalists for sure drove down here and for sure started firing on the police claiming to be uh, with Black Lives Matter. That's been a big thing in the news lately, uh, over the last uh, two days or three days. And so uh, that, well, I guess one of the instigators got caught. And so there's that, uh, which of course, you know, when you, there's also other videos showing people who don't seem to be directly involved in the protests, uh, just kind of creepy people walking around, smashing windows and trying to start fires and stuff because they were trying to get a riot to happen, it, it appears. So, there you go. Why is that happening? Why can't we just have a protest without it becoming this sort of battleground for some sort of race war that's going to get started by white nationalists? I don't know, but it sucks. Uh, And then, on top of it, um, Trump comes to, uh, to my fair city, and he knows he has the virus. He won't say when he was tested, but he definitely had the virus by the time he came to Minneapolis. And then... Spreads it around to people. Uh, they've been saying that all these different rallies he's been having have uh, started up little COVID hotspots with uh, people all sitting around glad-handing each other and nodding to each other, enjoying their power. I don't know what they're doing. And so now, so that's horrible. We've had two horrible things. Uh, and then, to top it off, Mike Pence is coming, uh, the vice president. His people around him have COVID. That just came out in the news <laughs> over this weekend. And uh, instead of quarantining, uh, because you can have the virus and spread it around to people without even knowing it. You don't show any symptoms and stuff, but you're still spreading. Uh, so he's not testing or positive, I guess, or whatever. He's, uh, he's coming to Minneapolis this week. And people say, don't do it. You're going to s- spread more virus around it. He's... He said, I don't care. And so he's coming anyways, even though all of his staff have it. What what did we do as a a city, a small city in a small little state? We didn't do anything. But 2020 is trying to kill us. Uh, Hopefully, at the start of the new year, this curse will end. 
Well, with that, let's uh, dive into our story. You ever think about Wilkie Collins, uh, the author who was born in 8th of January, 1824, and died in the 23rd of September, 1889? I do. I think about him all the time, whether I'm driving my kids to some event, uh, sitting at my computer doing work, or on the toilet. I think about how he was an English novelist and playwright known for uh, the Woman in White, written in 1859, and The Moonstone, uh, written in 1868. I think about that, and while I'm in the shower, I think about how he, uh, the last one has been called the first modern English detective novel. And it was, as I feed my cats in the morning, I reflect on the fact that he worked at, the, at first as a, as a tea merchant, which is interesting. Uh, and as I take my 22-year-old cat and have to feed him his thyroid medication. I think about how I'm publishing his first novel, Antonia, in 1850. Collins met Charles Dickens, who became a friend and mentor. Uh, some Collins works appeared first in Dickens' journals, uh, Household Worlds, Words, <laughs> and, and All the Year Round. I didn't know that Dickens had his own magazines. That's weird. And they have really weird titles, Household Words and All the Year Round. Uh, the two also collaborated on uh, drama and fiction. Nah, that's nice. Collins reached financial stability and uh, an international following in the 1860s uh, for his best-known works, but began to suffer from gout. I think about that, and at night, as I try to lay my head down and calm my mind so that I can drift gently off to sleep, I think about how he took opium for the pain, but became addicted to it. Uh, his health and his writing quality declined in the 1870s and the 1880s. Collins was uh, critical of the institution of marriage, which is weird. He later split his time between widow Carolyn Graves, uh, with whom he had lived most of his adult life, treating her daughter as his and the younger Martha Rudd, by whom he had three children. So, it's a little weird. With that, let's uh, dive into our story. The Dream Woman by Wilkie Collins I put lotion on my hands because turning physical pages is becoming such a pain in the butt for me. I still miss my Kindle. Uh, I got Mrs. Meyer's Clean Day Lavender Scented Hand Lotion, which I thought, oh, this will help me turn pages. But no, all it did is turn into a type of waxy film, and my fingers slide across the page even worse than before. It's like a, the surface of a bowling alley. So this is going to suck. I'm going to have to lick my fingers, which means I'm going to be tasting lavender the whole time. Thank God I got kombucha. Uh, well, let's just start the story. I had not been settled more than six weeks in my country practice when I was sent to a neighboring town to consult with the resident medical man there on a case of a very dangerous illness. And my horse had come down with me, and at the end of a long ride uh, the night before, Ed had hurt himself, luckily, much more than he had hurt his master. Being deprived of the animal services, I started for my destination by the coach. 
There were no railways at the time, parentheses, and I hope to get back again uh, toward the afternoon in the same way. After the consultation was over, I went to the principal inn of the town to wait for the coach. When it came up, it was full inside and out. Uh, there were no resources left me to, to get home as cheaply as I could by hiring a gig. The price asked, I don't know what a gig is, the price asked for this accommodation struck me as being so extortionate that I determined to look out for an inn of inferior pretensions and to try if I could uh, not to make a better bargain in the less prosperous establishment. I soon found a likely-looking house, a dingy, uh, quiet, uh, with an old-fashioned sign that had evidently not been repainted for the past many years. The landlord, uh, in this case, was not above making a, a small profit, uh, and as soon as we came to terms, he, he rang the yard bell to order the gig. What's a gig? We're looking it up. Uh... A gig. It's a job, usually for a specified time. That can't be it. Gig is a verb. Uh, to work as a musician. Eh, that can't be it. Uh, gigabyte? Nope. Uh, gig is a noun. Definition of gig. A long light ship's boat, or a rowboat designed for speed rather than for work. Uh, that ain't it. Uh, a light two-wheeled one-horse carriage. That's it. Something that whirls or is whirled. Okay, well, I guess it's the two-horse carriage. That was dumb. I just wasted my own time there. Let's uh, dive back into the story. Has uh, Robert not come back from that errand? Asked the landlord, appealing to the waiter, who answered the bell. Uh, no, sir, he hasn't. Well, then, you must wake up Isaac. Wake up Isaac, I repeated. That sounds rather odd. Do, do your ostlers... Go to bed in the in the daytime? This one does, said the landlord, smiling to himself in a rather strange way. And dreams, too, added the waiter. Well, I'll never give mind about that, retorted his master. You go round Isaac up. The, the gentleman's waiting for his gig. The landlord's manner and the waiter's manner expressed a great deal more than they either of them said. That's weirdly worded. I began to suspect that I might be on the trace of something professionally interesting to me as a medical man, and I thought I should like to look at the ostler before the waiter awakened him. I'm not looking up ostler. I'm just... It's like the gig. I thought it was a horse thing. Turns out it was. I wasted everyone's time. Ostler, uh, we're just going to say a laborious man. Stop a minute, I interpose. I have rather a fancy for seeing this man before you wake him up. Oh, that's weird. I am a doctor, and if this queer uh, sleeping and dreaming of his uh, comes from anything wrong in his brain, I may be able to tell you what to do with him. That's odd. I rather think you'll find his complaint past all doctoring, sir, said the landlord. But if you'd like to see him, uh, you're welcome, I'm sure. He led the way across the yard and down a passage to the stables. He opened one of the doors, and waiting outside himself, told me to look in. I found myself in a two-stall stable. In one of the stalls was a horse. He was munching his corn. In the other, an old man was lying asleep on the litter. Oh, he's an old man. He's just taking naps all the time. I do that constantly. I'm 40, uh, 46. Wow, I even forgot how old I was. I stooped and looked at him attentively. Uh, it was a withered, 
woebegone face. The eyebrows were painfully contracted, the mouth was set fast and drawn down at the corners, the hollow, wrinkled cheeks, and the scanty, grisly hair uh, told their own tale of past sorrow and suffering. Oh, he's that, he's just, he's so ugly he must have suffered. He was drawing his breath convulsively when I first looked at him, and in a moment uh, more he began to talk in his sleep. Wake up, I heard him say in a quick whisper uh, through clenched teeth. Uh, wake up, there, murder. He moved one lean arm slowly till it rested over his throat, shuddered a little, and turned on the straw. Uh, then the arm left his throat. How do you put your arm on your throat? And uh, the hand stretched itself out, and clutched at the side towards where he had turned, and as he fancied himself to be grasping at the edge of something. I saw his lips move and bent lower over him. He was still talking in his sleep. Like gray eyes, he murmured, and a droop in the left eyelid, uh, f- flaxen hair with a gold yellow streak in it. This is all weird. All right, mother, fair white arms <laughs> with a down on them, little lady's hand with a reddish look under the fingernails. This is all very detailed. Who who dreams where they narrate their their dreams out loud? When I dream, I have nightmares. All I can do is go, oh, I just make weird noise. I can't speak whole sentences like this, much less narrate what is going on. The knife! Always the cursed knife. First on one side, then on the other. Aha! You she-devil! Where's the knife? (laughs) At last, as the last word, uh, his voice rose. And he grew restless all of a sudden. I saw him shudder on the straw with his withered face became distorted. And he threw up both his hands with a quick hysterical gasp. They struck against the bottom of the manger under which he lay, and the blow awakened him. I had just the time to slip through the door and close it before his eyes were fairly open and his senses his own again. Do you know anything about the man's past life? I said to the landlord. Yes, sir, I know pretty well about it, was the answer. An uncommon queer story it is. Uh, Most people don't believe it. It's true, though, Uh, for all that. Why, just look at him, continued the landlord, opening the stable door again. Ah, poor devil. He's so worn out with his restless nights, and he's dropped back into sleep already. But don't wake him, I said. I'm in no hurry for the gig. Wait until the other... That's a horse carriage. Wait until the other man comes back from his errand. And in the meantime, I suppose uh, I have some lunch and a bottle of sherry. Ah, and suppose you come and help me get through it. The heart, the heart of my host, as I anticipated, warmed uh, to me over his own wine, and he soon became communicative on the subject of the man asleep in the stable. And by little and little, I drew the whole story out of him. Extravagant and incredible as the events may appear to uh, everybody, they are related here just as I heard them and just as they happened. Oh, sub-chapter two, or part two. Some years ago, there lived in the suburbs of a large seaport town on the west coast of England a man in humble circumstances by name Isaac Scratchard. Scatchard. We're going to say Scatchard. This means... Uh, his means of substance were derived from any employment which he was again as an ostler, and occasionally, when the times went well with him from temporary engagements and service as stable helper in private houses, though a faithful, steady, and honest man, he got on badly in his calling. As ill luck 
was proverbial among his neighbors. He was always missing good opportunities, by no fault of his own, and always living longest in service with amenable people who were not punctual payers of wages. Unlucky Isaac was his nickname in the neighborhood, and no one could say that he did not richly deserve it. Uh, With far more than one man's fair share of adversity to endure, Isaac had but one consolation to support him, and that was of the dreariest and most negative kind. He had no wife, and no children to increase his anxieties and add to the bitterness of his various failures in life. It might have been uh, from mere insensibility, or it might have been from generous unwillingness to involve another in his own unlucky destiny, but the fact undoubtedly was that he had arrived at the middle term of his life without marrying. And, what is much more remarkable, without once exposing himself from 18 to 8 and 30, uh... That's a weird way of saying that. To the genial imposition of ever having had a sweetheart. When he was out of service, he lived alone with his widowed mother, Miss Gatchard. Why am I having such a tough time reading it? It's S-C-A-T-C-H-A-H-I-R-D, whatever. It's Gatchard. I want to say Scratchard really badly. Was a woman above the average in her uh, lowly station. As to capacity and manners, she had seen better days, as the phrase is but she never referred to them in the presence of curious visitors, and, though perfectly polite to everyone who approached her, never cultivated any intimacies among her neighbors. She uh, contrived to provide hardly enough for her simple wants by doing rough work for the tailors and always managed to keep a decent home for her son uh, to return to whenever his ill luck drove him out helpless into the world. One bleak autumn, when Isaac was getting fast towards 40, oh, poor guy, and when he was, as usually, uh, out of place, though no fault of his own, he set forth from his mother's cottage in a long walk inland to a gentleman's seat, where he had heard that a stable helper was required. It wanted then but two days of his birthday, and Miss Gatchard, why am I having such a tough time with that one? with her usual fondness, and made him promise before he started that he would uh, be back in time to keep that anniversary with her. In a festive way, as their poor means would allow, it was easy for him uh, to comply with her request, even supposing he slept at night uh, each way on the road. He was to start from home on Monday morning, and whether he got the new place or not, he was to be back for his birthday dinner on Wednesday at 2 o'clock. Arriving at the destination too late on Monday night uh, to make an application to the stable's helper's place, he slept at the village inn, and in good time on Tuesday morning presented himself at the gentleman's house to fill the vacant situation. Here, again, his ill luck pursued him as inexorably as ever. The excellent written testimonials to his character, which he was able to produce, availed him nothing. His long walk had been taken in vain. Uh, Only the day before the stable helper's place had been given to another man, Isaac accepted his new disappointment resignedly, and as a matter of course, uh, naturally slow in capacity, he had the bluntness of sensibility and phlegmatic patience of disposition which frequently distinguished men with sluggish working mental powers. He thanked the gentleman's steward with his usual quiet civility for granting him an interview and took his departure with no appearance of unusual depression Uh, in his face or manner. That's a beaten-down man. 
Before starting, not his homeward walk, he made some inquiries at the inn and ascertained that he might save a few miles on his return by following a new road. Mm. Furnished with full instructions, several times repeated as to the various turnings he was to take, he set forth on his homeward journey and walked all day with only one stoppage for bread and cheese. Just as it was getting towards dusk, the rain came on and the wind began to rise. He found himself, to make matters worse, in a part of the country with which he was entirely unacquainted, though he knew himself to be some 15 miles from home. The first house he found to inquire at was a lonely roadside inn, standing on the outskirts of a thick wood. Solitary was the place looked. It was welcome to a lost man who was also hungry, uh, thirsty, uh, footsore, and wet. The landlord was civil and respectable-looking, and the price he asked for a bed was reasonable enough. Isaac, therefore, decided on stopping comfortably at the inn for the night. He was a constitutionally a temperate man. His supper simply consisted of two rashers of bacon, a slice of homemade bread, and a pint of ale. He did not go to bed immediately after his moderate meal, but sat up with the landlord, talking about his bad prospects and his long run of ill luck. Always one of those guys. And diverging from these topics to the subjects of uh, horse flesh and racing. Nothing was said, either by himself, his host, or the few laborers who strayed upon the taproom, which could, in the slightest degree, excite the very small and very dull imaginative faculty which... Isaac, scratch hard, scatch hard, never going to get that one, possessed. At a little after eleven, now the house was closed. Isaac went round with the landlord and held the candle while the doors and lower windows were being secured. He noticed, uh, with surprise, the strength of the bolts, bars, and iron-sheathed shutters. Uh, You see, we are rather lonely here, said the landlord. We never have any attempts made to break in yet. But it's always as well to be on the uh, the safe side. <laughs> when nobody is sleeping here, I am the only man in the house. Uh, my wife and my daughter, d- timid, and the servant girl takes after uh, Miss Missuses, Miss Seuses, Again, because this is a paper book, the word Missuses got cut in half because it reached the edge of the page with a little dash. So suddenly my mind just went blank and everything started melting out of my ear. Another glass of ale bore uh, before you turn in? No? Well, how such a sober man as you comes out to the place is more than I can make out for one. Here's where you're to uh, sleep. You're the only lodger tonight and I think you'll stay uh, my missus has done her best to make you comfortable. Are you quite sure you want to have another glass of ale? Eh? Very well. Good night. It was half past seven by the clock in the passage as they went upstairs to the bedroom, the window of which looked out uh, onto the wood at the back of the house. Isaac locked the door, set his candle on the chest of drawers, and wearily got ready for bed. The bleak autumn wind was still blowing, and the solemn, surging moan of it uh, in the wood was dreary and awful uh, to hear the night silence. Isaac felt strangely eh, wakeful, but he resolved as he lay down in his bed to keep the candle alight uh, until he began to grow sleepy. For there was something unendurably depressing in the bare idea of lying awake in the darkness, listening to the dismal, ceaseless moan of the wind in the wood. Sleep mm, stole on him, 
Before he was aware of it, his uh, eyes closed and he fell off insensibly to rest without having so much as a thought of extinguishing the candle. The first sensation of which he was conscious after sinking into slumber was a strange shivering that ran through him suddenly from head to foot, and a dreadful sinking pain uh, at the heart. Such as he had never felt before, the shivering only disturbed his slumbers. Uh, the pain woke him insensibly instantly. <laughs> I can't read. It's the tiny fonts. Uh, and only disturbed his slumbers. The pain woke him instantly. And in one moment, he passed from a state of sleep to a state of wakefulness, his eyes wide open. His mental perceptions cleared on a sudden, as if by a miracle. The candle had burnt down, uh, near to the last morsel of towel, uh, but the top of the unsnuffed wick had just fallen off, and the light in the room was, for the moment, fair and full. Between the foot of his bed and the uh, closed door, there stood a woman with a knife in her hand, looking at him. Oh, he's finally meeting somebody. Maybe he'll get married. He was stricken speechless with terror. Well, why? She's, maybe she just talked to her. But he did not lose the preternatural clearness of his faculties. He never took his eyes off the woman. She said not a word as they stared each other in the face. Well, they're having a nice little moment there. Maybe he should ask her name. But she began to move slowly toward the left-hand side of the bed. <coughs> That's classy. His eyes followed her. She was a fair, fine woman with a yellowish flaxen hair and light gray eyes with a droop in the left eyelid. He noticed these things and fixed them on his mind. Before, she was round at the side of the bed, speechless, with no expression in her face, with no noise following her footfall. She came closer and closer, stopped, and slowly raised the knife. Well, let's see, she's breaking the ice. They should, you know, maybe have a little conversation, get to know each other a little bit. He laid his right arm over his throat. How do you do that? To save it. But as he saw the knife coming down, threw his hand across the bed on the right side and jerked his body over that way, uh, which just as the knife descended into the mattress within an inch of his shoulder. His eyes fixed on her arm and hand as she slowly drew her knife out of the bed. A white, well-shaped arm with a pretty, uh, a pretty down lying lightly over the fair skin. A pretty down lying lightly over the fair skin? All right, whatever. A delicate lady's hand with a crowning beauty of pink flush under or around the fingernails. She sounds very pretty. She drew the knife out and passed back again slowly to the foot of the bed, stopped there for a moment looking at him, then came on, still speechless, still with no expression, on the beautiful face still with no sound following the stealthy footfalls, came to the right side of the bed where he now lay. <clears throat> well, she's pursuing him. Why doesn't he show some interest in her? As she approached, she raised the knife again. And he drew himself away to the left side. She struck, as before, right into the mattress with a deliberate perpendicularly downward action of the arm. This time his eyes wandered from her to the knife. It was like a like the large clasp knives which he had often seen laboring men use to cut their bread and bacon with. Her delicate little fingers did not conceal more than two-thirds of the handle, and he noticed that it was made of buckthorn, clean and shining as the blade was and looking like new. For the second time, ah, she drew the knife out, concealed it in the wide sleeve of her gown, and then stopped by the bedside watching him. Well, yeah, she's done everything she can to get his attention. For an instant, he saw her standing in that position. Then the wick of the spent candle fell over in the socket. The flame diminished to a little blue point, and the room grew dark. 
in a moment, or less if possible, passed so. And then the wick flamed up smokily for the last time. His eyes were still looking eagerly over the right-hand side of the bed when the final flash of light came. They looked discerned nothing. The fair woman with the knife was gone. Well, you had your chance. She could only put herself out there so much. The conviction that he was alone again weakened the hold of terror that had struck him dumb up to this time. The preternatural sharpness, he says preternatural a lot, which is the very intensity of the panic, had mysteriously imparted his faculties. Left him suddenly, burp. his brain grew confused, his heart beat wildly, his ears opened, and for the first time since the appearance of the woman, to a, a sense of woeful, ceaseless moaning of the wind among the trees, with the dreadful conviction of the reality of what uh, he had seen still strong within him. He leapt out of uh, bed and screaming, Murder! Wake up there, wake up! Dashed headlong through the darkness of the door. He was, it was fast-locked, exactly as he had left it on going to bed. His cries on starting up had alarmed the house. Ah, he heard the terrified, confused exclamations of women. Ah, he saw the master of the house approaching a long passage ah, with his burning rush candle in one hand and a, and a gun in the other. What is it? asked the landlord breathlessly. Isaac could only answer in a whisper. A woman with a knife in her hand, he gasped out. In my room, a fair yellow-haired woman. She jabbed at me with a knife twice over. The landlord's pale cheek grew paler. He looked at Isaac eagerly by the flickery light of the candle, and his face began to get red again. His voice altered, too, as well as his uh, uh, complexion. Really focused on this guy's cheeks and the colors of it. He seems to... She seems to have missed you twice, he said. I dodged the knife as it came down. Isaac went on in the same scared whisper. It struck the bed each time. The landlord took his candle into the bedroom immediately. In less than a minute, he came out again into the passage, a violent passage. The devil fly away with you and your woman uh, with the knife. There isn't a mark in the bedclothes anywhere. What do you mean by coming into a man's place and frightening his family out of their wits uh, by a dream? I'll leave your house, said Isaac faintly. Better out on the road, uh, in the rain and dark, on my way home, and back again in that room. After what I'd seen in it, uh, let me a light uh, to get my clothes by. Uh, tell me uh, what I am to pay. Pay, cried the landlord, leading his way with the light sulkily into the bedroom. You'll find your score on the slate when you go downstairs. I wouldn't have taken you in for all the money you've got about you if I'd known your dreaming, screeching ways beforehand. Uh, look at the bed. What's the, the cut of the knife in? Look at the window. It's locked. Bursted? Look at the door, which I had heard you fastened yourself. Is it broke in? A murdering woman with a knife in my house. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Isaac answered not a word. He huddled his clothes, and then they went downstairs together. Nigh on twenty minutes past two, said the landlord as they passed the clock. A nice time in the morning to frighten honest people out of their wits. Isaac paid his bill, and the landlord let him out of the front door, asking, uh, with a grin of contempt, as he undid the strong fastenings where the murdering woman got in the way, uh, they parted without a word on either side. The rain had ceased, but the night was dark, and the wind bleaker than ever. Little did the darkness or cold or the uncertainty uh, about the matter oops, uh, to Isaac. Sorry, I got a text message in the middle of my reading. Basically, the story is, my basement's got a weird smell to it, 
So I'm having someone come over to look at it, because I can't seem to figure out where the smell's coming from, and it's gross. So the person just texted now, at 9 o'clock at night, if he had been turned out into the wilderness in a thunderstorm, it would have been a relief. After what had suffered in the bedroom of the inn, uh, what was the fair woman with a knife? The creature of a dream? Or that other creature from the unknown world, called among men by the name of Ghost? He could make nothing of the mystery. He had made nothing of it, even when it was uh, midday on Wednesday, uh, when he stood at last, after many times missing the road, once more on the doorstep of home. Three! As mother came out eagerly to receive him, his face uh, told her in a moment that something was wrong. I've lost the place, that's my luck. I dreamed an ill dream last night, mother, or maybe I saw a ghost. Take it either way, it scared me out of my senses. And I'm not my own man uh, again yet. Oh, Isaac, your face frightens me. Uh, come to the fire, come in, and tell mother about it. He was as anxious to tell her as she was to hear, for it had been his hope all the way home that his mother, with her quicker capacity and superior knowledge, might be able to throw some uh, light on the mystery, which he could not clear up for himself. His memory of the dream was still mechanically vivid, uh, though his thoughts were entirely confused by it. His mother's face grew paler, uh, and paler as he went on, again with the uh, color of people's cheeks. She never interrupted him uh, by so much as a single word. But when he has done, she moved her chair close to his and put her arm around his neck and said to him, Isaac, you dreamed your ill dream on this Wednesday morning. What time was it when you saw the fair woman with the knife in her hand? Isaac reflected on what the landlord had said uh, when they had passed by the clock on the leaving of the inn, uh, allowed as nearly as he could for the time that it must have taken to elapse between the unlocking of the bedroom door and the paying of his bill just before going away. He answered, somewhere about two o'clock in the morning. His mother suddenly quitted her hold of his neck and struck her hands together with a gesture of despair. Ah, this Wednesday's your birthday, Isaac, and two o'clock in the morning is the time you were born. So it's just this, just the image of a nurse trying to cut the umbilical cord? Is that what haunts him every year or something? Isaac's capacities were not uh, quick enough to catch the infection of the mother's superstitious dread. He was amazed, uh, and a little startled also, when she suddenly rose from her chair, opened the old writing desk, took a pen, ink, paper, and then said to him, Your memory is but a poor one, Isaac, what, from when he was born? And now I'm an old woman. Mine's not much better. I want all about this dream of yours to be well known to the both of us. Hence, Years it is now. Uh, tell, tell me over again all you told me a minute ago when you spoke of that woman uh, with the knife looked like. Ah, Isaac obeyed, marveled as much as his mother. He was careful to set down the paper the very words he was saying. Uh, light gray eyes, she wrote as they came to the descriptive part, uh, with a droop in the left eyelid, uh, flaxen hair with a yellow gold streak in it, white arms. How would your arms be? I don't understand the downy arms part. With a down upon them, yeah. A little lady's hand, uh, with a reddish look about the fingertips. Uh, Claff's knife with a buckthorn uh, handle. Uh, that seems as good as new. To these particulars, Mrs. Mrs. Scratchard, Scatchard, never going to get it, added the year, month, and day of the week and the time of the morning. When the woman of the dream appeared to her son, she then locked up the paper carefully in a writing desk. Neither on that day nor any day after... 
Could her son induce her to return to the matter of the dream? She obstinately kept her thoughts about it to herself and even refused to refer again to the paper in the writing desk. Ere long, Isaac grew weary of attempting to make her break a resolute silence. And time, which sooner or later uh, wears out all things, gradually wore out the impression produced on him by the dream. He began thinking of it uh, carelessly, and he ended by not thinking of it at all. This result was more easily brought about by the advent of some important changes for better in his prospects, ah, which commenced not long after his terrible night's experience at the inn. Ah, he reaped the last of the reward of his long and patient suffering under adversity by getting an excellent place, ah, keeping it for seven years and leaving it on the death of his master, not only an excellent character, but also with a comfortable annuity bequeathed to him as a reward for saving his mistress's life in a carriage accident. Hmm. Thus it happened that Isaac Scatchard returned to his old mother seven years after the time of the dream at the inn with the annual sum of money at his disposal, sufficient to keep them both in ease and independence for the rest of their lives. The mother, whose health had been bad of late years, profited so much by the care bestowed on her by the freedom from money anxieties that when Isaac's birthday came round, she was able to sit up comfortably at a table and dine with him. On that day, as the evening drew on, Miss Scatchard discovered that the bottle of tonic medicine, which uh, she was accustomed to take, and in which she had fancied that a dose or more was still left, happened to be empty. Isaac immediately volunteered to go to the chemist and get it filled again, and it was rainy and bleak and autumn night, as on the memorable past occasion when he lost his way and slept at the roadside inn. And going into the chemist shop, he was passed hurriedly by a poorly dressed woman coming out of it. Uh, the glimpse he had of her face struck him, and he had looked back after her as she descended the door steps. Uh, you're, no you're noticing the woman? said the chemist's apprentice behind the counter. It's my opinion there's something wrong with her. Uh, she's been asking for laudanum and put in a bad tooth. Master's out for half an hour, and I told her I wasn't allowed to sell poison to strangers in his absence. Uh, she laughed in a queer way and said that she'd come back in, a, in half an hour. If she expects Master to serve her, I think she'll be disappointed. It's a case of suicide, sir, if there ever was one yet. These words added immeasurably to the sudden interest in the woman which Isaac had felt at first sight of her face. After he had the medicine bottle filled, he looked about anxiously for her as soon as he was out on the street. She was walking slowly up and down on the opposite side of the road, uh, with his heart, very much to his own surprise, beating fast. Well, he likes her. Uh, Isaac crossed over and spoke to her. He asked her if she was in any distress, and she pointed to her torn shawl, her scanty dress, her crushed, dirty bonnet then moved under a lamp so as to let the light fall on her stern, pale, but still most beautiful face. She sounds like a meth addict. I look like a comfortable, happy woman, don't I? She said with a bitter laugh. Yeah, meth addict. She spoke with a purity of intonation, which Isaac had never heard before from other ladies' lips. Her slightest actions seemed to have the easy, negligent, negligent grace of thoroughbred woman. Her skin, for all its poverty-stricken paleness, was as delicate as if her life had passed in the enjoyment of every social comfort and wealth can purchase. 
Even her small, finely shaped hands, gloveless as they were, had not lost their whiteness. Again with the whiteness. Little by little, in answer to his questions, the sad story of the woman came out, meth addict. There is no need to relate it here. It is told over and over again in police reports and paragraphs descriptive of the attempted suicides. My name is Rebecca Murdoch, said the woman as she ended. And I have nine pence left, and I thought of spending it at the chemist's over the way and securing a passage uh, to the other world. Whatever it is, it can't be worse to me than this. So why should I stop here? Besides the natural compassion and sadness moved in his heart by what he heard, Isaac felt within him a mysterious influence at work. All the time, the woman is speaking, which utterly confused his ideas and almost uh, deprived him of his powers of speech. All that he could say in answer to her last reckless words was that he would prevent her from attempting her own life. It followed uh, her about all night to do it. Oh, his rough, trembling earnestness seemed to impress her. I want to occasion you that trouble, she answered when he repeated his threat. You have given me a fancy for living by speaking kindly to me. Uh, no need for the mockery of protestations and promises. You may believe me <coughs> without them. Come to Fuller's Meadow tomorrow at twelve, and you will find me alive to answer for myself. No, no money. My nine pence will do to get me a good night's lodging if I want. She nodded and left him. He made no attempt to follow, but felt no suspicion that she was deceiving him. It's strange, but I can't help believing her, he said to himself as he walked away bewildered towards home. On entering the house, his mind was still so completely absorbed by its new subject of interest that he took no notice of what his mother was doing when he came in with the bottle of medicine. She had opened her old writing desk in the absence. He was now reading a paper attentively that lay inside it. On every birthday of Isaac since she had written down the particulars of the dream from his own lips, she had been accustomed to read that same paper and ponder over it in private. The next day he went to Fuller's Meadow, and he had done only right in believing her so implicitly. She was there, punctual to a minute, to answer for herself. The left, last left faint defenses in Isaac's heart against the fascination which a word or look from her began inscrutably to exercise over him, sank down and vanished before her forever on the memorable morning. When a man, previously insensible to the influence of woman, uh, forms an attachment in the middle of life, the instances are rare indeed. Oh, well, that's not hopeful for someone like me. <laughs> I'm in middle life. The chances of meeting a woman are rare. Damn it. Let the warning circumstances be that they may and that they found capable of freeing himself from the tyranny of the new ruling passion. The charm of being spoken to familiarly, fondly, and gratefully by a woman whose language and manners still retained enough for their early refinement to hint at the high social station that he had lost would have been a dangerous luxury to a man of Isaac's rank at the age of twenty. But it was far more than that. It was certain to ruin him. Now his heart was opening uh, unworthily to a new influence that in the middle time of life when strong feelings of all kinds, once implanted, strike root most stubbornly in a man's moral nature. A uh, few more stolen interviews after that first morning in Fuller's Meadow completed his infatuation. In less than a month from the time when he first met her, Isaac Scatchard had consented to give Rebecca Murdoch a new interest in existence and a chance of recovering the character she had lost by promising to make her his wife. 
She'd taken possession not only of passions, but of his faculties as well. All the mind he had put into her keeping, she distracted him, or directed him on every point, even instructing him how to break the news of his approaching marriage in the safest manner to his mother. If you, if you tell her how you met me, who I am at first, said the cunning woman, ah, she'll move heaven and earth to prevent our marriage. Say, I am the sister of one of your fellow servants. Ask her to see me before you go in any more particulars. Uh, leave it to me to do the rest. I mean to make her uh, love me. Uh, next best to you, Isaac, before she knows anything of who I really am. The motive of the deceit was sufficient to sanctify it to Isaac. The stratagem proposed relieved him of a great anxiety and quieted his uneasy conscience in the subject of his mother. Still, there was something uh, wanting to perfect his happiness, something that he could not yet realize, something mysteriously untraceable, and yet something that perpetually made itself felt. Not when he was absent from Rebecca Murdoch, but, strange to say, when he was actually in her presence. Oh, she was kindness itself with him. She never made him feel his inferior capacities and inferior manners. She showed the sweetest anxiety to please him in the smallest trifles, but in spite of all the attractions, he never could feel quite at ease with her. At their first meeting, uh, there had mingled with his admiration, uh, when he looked her in the face, a faint involuntary feeling of doubt whether the face was entirely strange to him, no after-familiarity had the slightest effect on the inexplicable, wearisome uncertainty. Concealing the truth, as he had been directed, yeah, he announced his marriage engagement uh, precipitously and confusedly to his mother on the day when he contracted it. Poor Miss Scatcherd showed her perfect confidence in her son by flinging her arms around her neck <laughs> and giving him joy to having found, at last, in the sister of one of his fellow servants a woman to comfort and care for him after his mother was gone. Ah, she was all eagerness to see the woman of her son's choice, and the next day was fixed for the introduction. It was a bright and sunny morning, and the little cottage parlor was full of light. As Miss Scatcherd, not happy and expectant, dressed for the occasion in her Sunday gown, sat waiting for her son and her future daughter-in-law. Punctual to the appointed time, Isaac hurriedly and nervously led his promised wife into the room. His mother rose to receive her, advanced a few steps smiling, looked Rebecca full in the eyes, and suddenly stopped. Her face, which had been flushed again with this, the moment before, had turned white in an instant. Her eyes lost the expression of softness and kindness and assumed a, a blank look of terror. Her outstretched hands fell to her sides, as she staggered back a few steps with a, with a low cry to her son. Oh, Isaac, she whispered, clutching him fast by the arm. When he asked alarmedly if she'd taken ill, Isaac, does that woman's face remind you of nothing? Before he could answer, before he could uh, look round to where Rebecca stood, astonished and angered by her reception at the lower end of the room, his mother pointed impatiently to her writing desk and gave him the key. Open it, she said in a quick, breathless whisper. Uh, what does this mean? Why am I treated as if I have no business here? Does your, does your mother want to insult me? Asked Rebecca angrily. Open it and give me the paper in the left-hand drawer. Quick, quick, for heaven's sake, said Mrs. Scatchard. I'm getting the hang of it, shrinking further back in terror. Isaac gave her the paper, and she looked it over eagerly for a moment, then followed Rebecca, who was now uh, turning away haughtily uh, to leave the room. 
which makes sense, had caught her by the shoulder, now that's weird, abruptly raised the long, loose sleeve of her gown and glanced at her hand and her arm. Something like fear began to steal over the ending expression of Rebecca's face as she shook herself free from the old woman's grasp. Mad, she said to herself, and Isaac never told me. With those few words, she left the room. Isaac, I was hastening after When his mother turned and stopped his further progress, it wrung his heart to see the misery and terror in her face as she looked at him. Light gray eyes, she said in a low, mournful, awestruck tones, pointing towards the open door. A droop in the left eyelid, uh, flaxen hair, and a gold-yellow streak in it. White arms with a down on them. Little lady's hand with a reddish look under the fingernails. The dream woman, Isaac. The dream woman. That faint, cleaving doubt which had never been able to shake off in Rebecca Murdoch's presence, was fatally set at rest forever. He had seen her face, then before, seven years before, on his uh, birthday, in the bedroom of the Lonely Inn. Be warned, oh my son, be warned. Isaac, exclamation point, Isaac, exclamation point, let her go. And do you stop with me? Something dark in the parlor window as those words were said. A sudden chill ran through him, and he glanced sidelong at the shadow. Rebecca Murdoch had come back. She was peering in curiously at them over the low window blind. I had promised to marry mother, he said, and marry I must. The tears came into his eyes as he spoke and dimmed his sight, but he could uh, just discern the fatal face outside, moving away again from the window. His mother's head sank lower. Uh, are you faint? He whispered. Uh, Broken-hearted, Isaac. He stooped down and kissed her. The shadow, as he did so, returned to the window, and the fatal face peered in curiously once more. Part four. Uh, three weeks after that day, Isaac and Rebecca were man and wife. All that was hopelessly dogged and stubborn in the man's moral nature seemed to have closed around his fatal passion and had to have fixed it unassailably to his heart. Boy, things are really declining for me right now. After that first interview in the cottage parlor, no consideration could influence Miss Scatchard. Uh, to see her son, I, I'm losing the Scatchard part too. Her son's uh, wife again. And even talk uh, of her when Isaac tried hard to please her uh, cause after their marriage. This course of conduct was not in any degree occasioned by a discovery in the degradation in which Rebecca lived. There was no question of that between mother and son. There was no question of anything but the fearfully exact resemblance between the living, breathing woman and the specter woman of Isaac's dream. Rebecca, on her side, uh, neither felt nor expressed the slightest sorrow in the estrangement between herself and the mother-in-law. Isaac, uh, for the sake of peace, had never con- uh, contradicted her first idea that age and long illness had affected Mr. Scatcher's mind. He even uh, allowed his wife to upbraid him for not having confessed this to her at the time of their marriage engagement. Rather than risk anything by hinting at the truth, uh, the sacrifice of his integrity before his one all-mastering delusion seemed but a small thing, and the cost of his conscience but little. After the sacrifices had already been made, the time of waking from his delusion, the cruel and rueful time, was not far off. After some quiet months of married life, as the summer was ending and as the year was getting on toward the month of his birthday, Isaac found his wife altering toward him. 
she grew sullen and contemptuous. As she formed acquaintances of the most dangerous kind in defiance of his objections, his entreaties, and his commands. And worst of all, she learned ere long, after every fresh uh, difference with her husband, to seek the deadly self-oblivion of drink. Little by little, after the first miserable discovery uh, that his wife was keeping company with drunkards, the shocking certainty forced itself on Isaac that she had grown to be a drunkard herself. He had been in a sadly desponding state for some time before the occurrence of these domestic calamities. His mother's health, as uh, he could but too plainly discern every time he went to see her at the cottage, was failing fast. Uh, and he abraded himself in secret as the cause of the bodily and mental suffering she endured. When, to his remorse on his mother's account, was added the shame and the misery occasioned by the discovery of his wife's degradation, he sank under the double trial. Ah, his face began to alter fast. Oop, again with the face. I bet you it's going to be about cheek color. And he looked, uh, was a, a spirit-broken man. His mother, still struggling bravely against the illness that was hurrying her to her grave, was the first to notice the sad alteration in him. She probably mentioned something about his cheek color, and the first to hear his last worst troubles with his wife. She could only weep bitterly on the day when he made his humiliating confession. But on the next occasion we went to see her, she had taken the resolution in reference to his domestic afflictions, which astonished and even alarmed him. He found her dressed to go out, and on asking the reason, received this answer. Ah, I'm not long for this world, Isaac, she said, and I shall not feel easy on my deathbed unless I have done my best to make my son happy. Burp, I mean to put my own fears and my feelings out of the question. And to go with you to your wife and try what I can to reclaim her. Ah, give me your arm, Isaac, and let me do the last thing I can in this world to help my son before it's too late. I could not disobey her, and they walked together slowly toward this miserable home. It was only uh, one o'clock in the afternoon when they reached the cottage where he lived, and it was their dinner hour, and Rebecca was in the kitchen, and he was able to uh, take his uh, mother quietly into the parlor and prepare his wife for the interview. He, she had fortunately drunk uh, but little at that early hour, and she was less sullen and capricious than usual. He returned to his mother with his mind tolerably at ease. His wife soon followed him into the parlor, and the meeting between her and Mr. Mrs. Scatcherd passed off better than he had ventured to anticipate, though he observed with secret apprehension that his mother, resolutely, as she controlled herself in other respects, could not look his wife in the face when she spoke to her. It was a relief to him, therefore, when Rebecca began to lay the cloth. Oh, she laid the cloth brought in the bread tray and cut a slice from the loaf Oh, for her husband, oh boy, then returned to the kitchen. At that moment, Isaac, still anxiously watching his mother, was startled by seeing the same ghastly change pass over her face, ooh, colored cheeks, which had altered it so awfully in the morning when Rebecca had first met. Before he could say a word, she whispered with a look of horror, Take me back, home, home again, Isaac. Come with me and never go back again. He was afraid to ask for an explanation. He could only uh, sigh her to be silent and keep her uh, quickly to the door. As they passed the bread tray on the table, she stopped and pointed at it. Do you see what your wife cut the bread with? She asked in a low whisper. No, mother. I was not noticing. What is it? Look. Oh, he did look. A new clasp knife with a buckthorn handle lay on the loaf 
of the bread tray. He stretched out his hand, shudderingly, to possess himself of it, but at the same time, there was a noise in the kitchen. His mother caught his arm. The knife of the dream, Isaac. Oh, I'm faint with fear. Take me away before she comes back. The eyes hardly able to support her. The visible, tangible reality of the knife struck him with a, with a panic and utterly destroyed any faint doubts he might have entertained up to this time the, to, the real, to the relation of the mysterious dream warning of nearly eight years before. And by the last uh, desperate effort, he summoned self-possession enough to help his mother out of the house so quietly that the dream woman, uh, he thought of her by that name now, did not hear their departure. Don't go back, Isaac, don't go back, implored Mrs. Scatcherd, as he turned to go away after seeing her safely seated again in her own room. Oh, I must get the knife, he answered under his breath. His mother tried to stop him again, but he hurried out without a word. On his return, he found that his wife had discovered their secret departure from the house, and she'd been drinking. He was in a fury of passion. The dinner in the kitchen was flung under the grate. The cloth was off the piler table. Uh, where was the knife? Unwisely, uh, he asked for it. She was only too glad of the opportunity of irritating him, which the request afforded her. He wanted the knife, did he? Uh, could he give her a reason why? No, then he should not have it. Not if he went down on his knees to ask for it. Further recriminations elicited the fact that she had brought it as a bargain, and that he considered it her own special property. Isaac saw the uselessness of attempting to get the knife by fair means determined to search for it later in the day, uh, in secret. Uh, this search was unsuccessful. Uh, night came on, and he left the house to go walk the streets. He was afraid now to sleep in the same room with her. Uh, three, three weeks passed, till suddenly a rage with him. She, could not give, she would not give up the knife, and still that fear of sleeping in the same room with her possessed him. Uh, he walked about at night, or dozed in the parlor, or sat watching by his mother's bedside. Before the expiration of the first week uh, in a new month, his mother died. It wanted then but ten days of her son's birthday. She had longed to live out till that anniversary. Isaac was present at her death, and her last words in this world were addressed to him. Don't go back, my son, don't go back. He was obliged to go back, even if only to watch his wife, exasperated to the last degree by his distrust of her. She had revengefully sought to add a sting to his grief during the last days of his mother's illness by declaring that she should assert her right to attend the funeral. In spite of all that that he could do or say, she held with wicked pernicity to her word, and on the day appointed for the burial forced herself, inflamed and shameless with drink, into the husband's presence and declared that she would walk in the funeral procession to his mother's grave. This last, worst outrage, accompanied by all that was most insulting in a word and look, maddened him for the moment. He struck her. On the instant the blow was dealt, he repented it. Well, because he's a jerk. She crouched down, silent, in a corner of the room, and eyed him steadily. It was a look that cooled his hot blood and made him tremble. But there was no time now to think of means of making atonement. Uh, nothing remained but to risk the worst till the funeral was over. There was but one way of making sure of her. Uh, he locked her in her bedroom. When he came back some hours later, he found her sitting, uh, very much altered and looking bearing, by the bedside with a bundle on her lap. Uh, she rose and faced him quietly and spoke with a strange stillness in her voice, a strange repose in her eyes, a strange composure in her manner. No man has ever struck me twice, she said, and my husband shall have no second opportunity. Set the door open and let me go. From this day forth, we shall see each other no more. 
Before he could answer, uh, she passed him and left the room and uh, saw her walk away up the street. When she returned, well, probably she's full of rage. He just beat her, so now she's going to come back with a knife, probably. All that night, he watched and waited, but no footsteps came near the house. The next night, overcome by fatigue, he lay down in bed in his clothes, with the door locked and the key on the table and the candle burning. His slumber was not disturbed. The third night, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth passed, and nothing happened. He lay down on the seventh, uh, still in his clothes, still with the door locked and the key on the table and the candle burning, but easier in his mind. Easier in his mind and in perfect health of body when he fell off to sleep. But his rest was disturbed. He woke twice without any sensation of uneasiness. But the third time, it was that never-to-be-forgotten shivering of the night of the lonely inn, that dreadful sinking pain in his heart, which one more aroused him in an instant. His eyes opened toward the left-hand side of the bed, and there stood the dream woman again. No, his wife, the living reality, with the dream specter's face, nah, in the dream specter's attitude, with the fair arm up, the knife clasped in the delicate white hand. He sprang upon her almost at the instant of seeing her, and yet not quickly enough to prevent her from hiding the knife. Without a word from him, without a cry from her, he pinioned her to a chair. With one hand, he felt up her sleeve. Ah, and there, where the dream woman had hidden the knife, uh, his wife had hidden it. The knife with the buckthorn handle uh, looked uh, like new. In the despair of that fearful moment, his brain was steady. His heart was calm. He looked at her fixedly with the knife in his hand and said these last words. Uh, You told me uh, we should see each other no more. And you come back. It's my turn to go now, uh, to go forever. I say that we shall never see each other no more, and my word shall not be broken. He left her and set forth into the night. Ah, There was a bleak wind abroad, and the smell of recent rain was in the air. The distant church clocks chimed the hour as he walked rapidly beyond the last houses in the suburb. He asked the first policeman he met uh, what hour it was, uh, which quarter it had passed he struck. The man referred sleepily uh, to his watch and answered, uh, Two o'clock, uh, two in the morning. What day of the month was this day that had just begun? He reckoned it up from the date of his mother's funeral. The fatal parallel was complete. Ah, it was his birthday. He had uh, escaped mortal peril in which his dream foretold. Or had he only received a second warning? As this ominous doubt forced itself on his mind, he stopped, reflected, and turned back again toward the city. He was still resolute to hold to his word and never let her see him again, Uh, but there was a thought now in his mind of having her watched and followed. The knife was in his possession. The world was before him, but a new distrust of her, a vague, unspeakable superstitious dread had overcome him. I know, I must know. There she goes. Now she thinks I have left her, he said to himself as he stole back wearily to the precincts of the house. It was still dark, and he had uh, left the candle burning in the bedchamber. But when he looked up the window of the room now, there was no light in it. He crept cautiously to the house door. On going away, he remembered to have closed it. On trying it now, he found it open. He waited outside, never losing sight of the house, till daylight. Then he ventured indoors, listened, and heard nothing. Looked into the kitchen and the scullery, the parlor, and found nothing. Went up to the last of the bedroom, and it was empty. 
A picklock lay on the floor, betraying now she had gained entrance in the night, and that it was the only trace of her. Whither had she gone? Ah, no mortal tongue could tell him. The darkness had covered her flight, and when the day broke, no man could say where the light found her. Before leaving the house and the town forever, he gave instructions to a friend and a neighbor to sell his furniture for anything they would fetch, and to apply the proceeds towards employing the police to trace her. The directions were honestly followed, and the money was all spent. But the inquiries led to nothing. The picklock in the bedroom floor remained uh, at least useless trace of the dream woman. At this part of the narrative, the landlord paused. Oh, we're back to the landlord again. And, turning toward the window of the room in which we were sitting, looked in the direction of the stable yard. So far, said he, I tell you what he told me. The little that remains to be added lies within my own experience. Between the two and three months after the events I have just been relating, Isaac Scatchard uh, came to me withered and old-looking before his time. Just as you saw him today, he had his testimonials to character with him, and he had asked me for employment here. Knowing that my wife and he were distantly related, I gave him a, a trial and consideration of that relationship and uh, liked him in spite of his queer habits. Hmm. And he is as sober, honest, and willing a man as there is in England. Burp. As for his restlessness at night and his sleeping away the leisure time of the day, uh, who can wonder at it hearing his story? Uh, besides... He never objects to being roused up when he's wanted, so there's not much inconvenience to complain of, after all. I suppose he's uh, afraid of a return to that dreadful dream, and of walking out in the dark. No, returned the landlord. The dream comes back to him so often that he's got to bear with it by this time, resignedly enough. It's his wife keeps it waking at night, as he's often told me. Uh, what? Has she never been heard of yet? Never, Isaac himself, was the one perpetual thought that she is alive and looking for him. I believe he wouldn't let himself drop off to sleep toward uh, two in the morning for a king's ransom. Two in the morning, he says, is the time she will find him. One of these days. Two in the morning is the time. Oh, all year round. When he likes to be most certain that he has got the clasp knife safe about him. He does not mind being alone as long as he's awake except on the night before his birthday, when he firmly believes himself to be in peril of his life. Birthday has only come around once since he's been here, and then he sat up along with the night's porter. Uh, she's looking for me, as Ali will say when anybody speaks to him about the anxiety in his life. Uh, she's looking for me. Uh, he might be right. She may be looking for him. Who can tell? Question mark. Uh, who can tell? Said I. was good about that story? Uh, I don't know. That the guy got married? Maybe that there's hope for middle-aged men like me to marry someone. Even though that person will probably wind up trying to kill you, it's uh, at least, at least you'll still get married, even though she hangs out with drunks. Uh, what's bad about this story? A lot. Uh, you have the, the premise which is, a woman's going to kill you. Was it a ghost, or was it a living woman? Well, now we find out it's a living woman. What's up with the downy arms? I have no idea, and I'm not looking it up. Uh, the flushing of the cheeks? That was a big part of the first half of the story. 
Uh, and then, so then she does try to kill him after he beats her. So that only makes sense. Uh, and then, you know, the woman's depressed and she's drinking all the time. Then he beats her and then, uh, she comes back angry because she's depressed and drinking. And then, uh, she doesn't even try to officially kill him. She's just hiding the knife and he gets it from her. And then he takes off. It was like, okay, so then there, that wraps up the story. Like he had a premonition and the premonition kept him from getting killed. Great. Uh, why did his mom have to write it down in a note and then specifically never talk about it as if she knows something like from him being born that maybe a nurse tried to kill him? Or I don't know. But then that led to nothing. Mom dies. And then uh, and then uh, his wife stands over him with a hidden knife that he gets from her. And then that's it. That should be the end of the story. But no, now he's haunted forever, thinking that she's going to come back and find him. Except that she took off right away. It doesn't seem to want to have anything to do with him. Uh, moral of the story, she just be leave the woman. What do we learn from this story? We learned leave the woman alone. Yeah, you're not the the victim of this story. You're the you're the you're the problem. But everyone's the hero of their own story, so I guess according to this man, he's he's the victim. He's going to spend his whole life uh, hoping she doesn't come back to kill him. When actually he should be confronting the fact that he's got anger issues and he beats his wife. Well, anyways. I guess we can also learn that, uh, like the year 2020 is to the city I live in, uh, with the horrible events that have transpired, uh, I'm going to live in fear of it coming back one last time and doing something horrible. Like Mike Pence coming and possibly spreading around more coronavirus. I don't know. I'm going to go. Thanks for listening.